0: Welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Turn in your Bibles with us. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 23 this morning. Psalm chapter 23. <laughs> Now, 2020 has been quite the year. Is that right? I mean, it's it's been a crazy year. I saw somebody online, they posted the other day, they said, you know, if I had known this is what the year was going to be like, I would not have stayed up to midnight and celebrated on New Year's Eve. They said, there's nothing to celebrate in 2020. Within the first five days of the year, our government took action against Iran, and we found ourselves by January 5th on the brink of war with another country. We started mobilizing the army. We weren't sure how they were going to respond. It was a pretty, pretty stressful time. Now that lasted about two weeks and then it kind of faded away, but 2020 started bad and from there progressively got worse if you ask me. It wasn't very long after that about January 15th we heard for the first time this word coronavirus and at the time it seemed like a distance far off thing it didn't matter very much but before long we got reports that now it's in Washington and it's in California and it's in New York and that didn't bother us too much here in Arkansas we're kind of like in God's country protected for everything but then the day come coronavirus came to Arkansas and there was one case and the next day there were three cases and there were 13 cases cases. And now we've had thousands of cases. It's just got worse. Our government decided that this was something to be very cautious of, and they shut down America. I didn't know America had a close sign, but it does. They put on the close sign and shut down America, and our economy went in the tank the worst fall since 1927. It's been a bad year, and it has just completely got worse. And if that's not bad enough, it wasn't very long after that that we started having political and racial tension in the country. People mad at each other. It has turned violent. People have been harmed at that. And that's just the things that have affected you and me. That's not even counting the fact that there were swarms of locusts in Africa that caused a food shortage for hundreds of thousands of people. There were fires in Australia that half of the people in the country of Australia were affected by. And just in case we needed a cherry on top of 2020, It's an election year. You know what election year is? That's a a synonym, that's a code word for everybody's mad about something. And I don't know if you watch the news or if you get on social media or if you go outside, everybody is mad about something in 2020 with the election. And I've got news for you. November's coming around and you know what's going to happen after the election? (laughs) Everybody's still going to be mad because half of the country is going to be mad their candidate didn't win and the other half of the country is going to be mad that the first half is mad. It's just just not going to get any better from here in an election year. You will never find joy in politics and if that's not bad enough... As if they couldn't take just a little bit more from our soul, there's not a person in the country that can promise me we're gonna play college football. I can't take any more of this. Well, you know what? 2020 has been a bad year and there is a lot of bad things about it, but here's what's special about being a follower of Christ is in the midst of problems, we have joy and peace. And the world out there is in a panic. And, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes it comes into our hearts as well. But as followers of Christ, we should be in a heart of joy and peace all the time. Now, in the midst of all these problems, as I prepared for this sermon, I really concentrated on what, what God had for us for 2020. What is it that we could, you know, do to come over this, to overcome all these things? And I was kind of reminded of what our 2020 focus is. You guys remember what we chose to focus on in 2020? It's okay if you do we haven't said it every Sunday. It's been an underlying theme. 2019 was the year of prayer at Ramsey Heights, and 2020 was the is the year of worship at Ramsey Heights. We have focused on having a heart of worship and even though we don't say it every single Sunday there's been this underlying theme from the very first Sunday where we had a sermon called Praise the One Who Set Me Free and we focused on what worship is. When we went to our Revive the City series and we went to Nehemiah and after they built the wall they had this giant worship service. In our focus series that we did when we were out and we were going virtually, in our focus series, each week we took one of these old, historic, beautiful hymns and we talked about not just the words of the hymn, but the heart that it took to write those words. We focused on worship, and I'm excited to start a new series today looking at some of the psalms, I don't even know how long it's going to go, called The Shadow and the Shepherd. I'm very excited to do this and to focus our hearts in worship because what this reminds us is no matter what's going on, no matter what shadow surrounds us, no matter how dark it seems in the world around us, there's a shepherd that is worthy to be praised. Now I promise I haven't forgot the scripture. I'm not just gonna talk the whole time. I'm gonna get there, but a couple of things I want to go over first is I want to define why we worship. Why do we worship and what does that mean for us in 2020? Our first take home truth is this is worship exalts God in our hearts and minimizes everything else. Worship exalts God in our hearts and minimizes everything else. Now see, the word exalt just simply means to think or speak highly of. And that's why we focus on God not just in song, but in our daily life. We tend to say worship like it's what we do when we come to church, like our worship service. But worship is not just singing when you're at church. Worship is having a heart of praising and lifting up God in our worship service. Worship is a Having a heart of praising and worshiping God at work. Worship is a heart of having, or is a have a worship is having a heart of praising and lifting up God in the hardest times. Worship is a lifestyle, and it builds up God and it exalts Him. And the Scripture teaches us that God desires this. Have you ever had somebody say something good about you? Like they walk up to your, to your spouse or family member and like, you know, I just want to brag. I just want to brag on this person. And they say good things about you. Or they come and say, I just want to thank you. I've never met anybody who would, who would do this for people. Doesn't that make you feel good when people are grateful for what you've done? When, when people see something in you that you might not even see in yourself and they talk highly about you. God feels the same way when in our hearts we worship Him. When we praise Him, He desires that, and even better, He deserves Him. So we exalt him because he desires it and he is worthy of it and we exalt him with praise. But worship does something for us too. This is is the secret of God. When you serve God, somehow it always comes back to you as well. We don't serve God for the sake of serving ourselves, but when we worship God, we get something out of it as well. And so what worship does is it focuses us on God. It brings him to the front of our minds, that, that little area of our mind where we tend to worry about coronavirus and we tend to worry about politics and we worry about, if we're going to have jobs, and we worry about all the problems of the world, what worship does is it pushes all of those things aside in the front of our mind, and it keeps a laser-like focus on God and who He is and His goodness goodness, and His glory and His grace. And that's that's why we come together and we sing. That's why we have a worship service, is because when we come into this church, it is a hard world out there. The first thing we do is we come in and we set time aside. We're going to meet for an hour. The first 20 minutes of it, we're just going to sing about how good God is. We're just going to focus our minds on who He is. It's not words in a book and it's not words on a screen. It's our hearts crying out to God, you are good to us. God, you deserve to be praised. And God, I'm thankful that I have you in everything that you do. That's why when we go into our worship service, we can come here and we can listen to the message with a heart of worship. And when we have the scripture that is tough and it's challenging and it makes us feel a little down about ourselves, a heart of worship remembers that God is greater than my sin. God is greater than everything else. And it's why when we serve in church, when we go to work, when we have problems in the world, we can have a heart of worship. It's actually a lifestyle. And this is what's amazing is when we exalt God and we build him up, everything else by comparison become small. If we live a lifestyle of worship, all of our problems become small because we focus on how great and how good God is. So that means that when we focus on corona and the the fear that comes with that, it suddenly becomes a little bit smaller next to the goodness of God. When we focus on politics and who's going to win and what's the country going to be like this time next year, those problems become very small because you know what? It doesn't matter who the president is. We know the king, and it's only a temporary thing of what's going to happen with this country or this world. We know it's going to get worse. My problems seem to fade away when I worship in God. And even to this point, if we can truly live a lifestyle of worship, it doesn't matter if I live or I die. Because if I live, I will live in the goodness of God. And if I die, I will still live in the goodness of God. If we can keep this at the forefront of our minds, this lifestyle and this heart of worship, it focuses us focuses us on the positive and takes away the negative. We're going to talk about Psalm 23 today. Maybe the, the most important psalm in the whole book. There's 150 of them, but this is the one that everybody knows almost by heart, and it's one of the most beautiful. Written by David. David, we were introduced to, to him as a shepherd boy, and even as a teenage boy, he lived a life of worship. All we knew about David when he started is he was a shepherd boy. He stayed out in the fields with the sheep, and he carried with him a harp. What do you think he sung on that harp? It wasn't Elvis Presley and it wasn't ACDC and it wasn't Florida Georgia Line. I think David sat around a campfire and under the stars and he watched his sheep and he worshiped God and he built him up and he exalted him and he let his problems become small. One day David was called home. He said, His dad sent and said, You've got to come home. And he walked in, and in his house stood the prophet Samuel, God's messenger to Israel. And they told David, Samuel has come here saying that one of Jesse's sons is the next king of Israel. And we went through all the other sons, all your other brothers, and it's you. Now imagine that moment. That may sound awesome, like I get to be a king. I don't think that's any rational person's reaction to becoming a king. That's a lot of responsibility That, and yet David exalted God. When the armies of Israel faced the Philistines and a giant stood in the field and taunted them, David walks into camp and listen to what he did. When he asked why nobody will fight Goliath, they said he's unbeatable. And what did David start talking about? He started talking about the power of God. He started exalting God in his heart and because he had this heart of worship, Goliath became a small problem to a small boy. And because he was able to live a lifestyle of worship, David stood in the shadow of a giant with five smooth stones and only the presence of God. And he took him down. David later came, became close to King Saul. King Saul knew David was going to come for his throne. He knew that David was incredibly popular with people. And so he made a decision to murder David and David hid in caves to save his own life. And you know what he did when he was in caves? He wrote songs of worship to God. He would lay out his problems to God, but there's this common theme where he would then pick up the name of God. He would exalt God and say, Here are my problems, but God is greater still and God is controlled. David led a life of worship and he had a heart of worship. And at the end of his life, as a king, he sits down and he looks back on his time as a shepherd boy and he writes the 23rd Psalm. You got your Bibles open? Let's read this trick question today. I need you to read this one out loud with me. We're going to read it together. Okay, here we go. Loud. None, None of this quiet stuff I've heard this morning. Loud. Here we go. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I tell you what, there's not a whole lot in the world that's going on that you can't find a little bit of peace in, and focusing on the words of the 23rd Psalm. And that's what I want to do today, is I want to focus on what David is saying here as he writes this Psalm. Our our second take-home truth this morning is, he is my shepherd. Now, if you're keeping up in the outline, don't write my like you normally would. I want you to write in big letters. I left extra room. Big letters. M-Y. Capital letters. Scribble it in. Make it really bold, because that word changes the rest of the psalm for us. David does not say the Lord is a shepherd. The Lord is like a shepherd. David says the Lord is my shepherd, not the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He has ownership of God. He has ownership of this relationship with God. Now, many of you have kids. Do you guys remember that stage they went through at two years old, the mind stage, where they would grab random things and be like, give that to me, and they'd... "Mm." mine you guys remember that i haven't got there quite yet with mine, but i'm sure it is coming there's something that even as a two-year-old we recognize the value in being able to call something mine to say this belongs to me it means that this is dedicated to me and i can have it and use it whenever i need it that's what that mind stage means and a kid at two years old is having this, this mind moment in the middle of Walmart and you're trying to reason with a kid in the middle of Walmart. It's like, that's not yours. That belongs to Walmart and we got to leave it here because I don't have the money for it, right? And then the kid replies to you with all of the wisdom in the world, mine like that's all they know how to reply even as kids we understand the value of something being mine being able to say my toy my shepherd my anything it's dedicated to me it's available when i need it and that makes it special to me now see there are many many wives across the country but only two of them are mine I've seen if you guys are sleeping and only two of you laugh. So, you know, the rest of y'all need to wake up. Okay, I want to pay for that when I get home, so pray for me. Only one wife in the world is mine. And, men, I hate to tell you, I'm sure that you're very fond of your wife, but I think mine is the most special ever. I, I love her with all of my heart. We have shared laughter that I can't even express. We have worshiped together. We have served God together. And we've been there for each other in the midst of hardships. There are many wives, but only one is mine. And because of that, I share a deep emotional relational connection with her. In in, in the world, there are a lot of houses, and houses are all basically the same thing. They have a roof, a ceiling, some walls, a place to sleep, a place to eat, a place to bathe, and something to sit on. That's really pretty much how every house goes. And everybody has these different houses, but there's only one that is my home that is special to me. It's a place where my daughter plays and crawls on the floor. Actually, she doesn't quite crawl. She hasn't figured that out. She thinks she has to use her forehead to crawl. But what she has figured out this week is that if she points her body in the right direction and does like 20, commando rolls so she can mobilize herself across the house and so she she rolls across the house now you put her down on a blanket before you know it she's in the the next room Um, it's kind of scary that she's not even six months old and already trying to run away from home side topic sorry my house is special to me because i build those memories my home is special to me because it's a place of safety and security for my family my home is special to me because we've invested in and it is my home And this morning, there are churches meeting all over the country. And they're all doing relatively the same thing. They're worshiping and they're opening the Bible. But Ramsey Heights is my church. Ramsey Heights is our church. And and you guys are special to me. You guys are my family. And every family has that one cousin that you tolerate. And so you're stuck with me. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. But because we choose this to be our church, we say that Ramsey Heights is my church, you and I share a deep, emotional, relational connection. David says the Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd. He says, I share with the creator of the universe, a deep, personal, relational, emotional connection. David knew how to focus on God. See, there are so many people that look to other things in the world to be their shepherds. See, David looked to God to be my healer and my restorer, my provider, and my comfort and my guidance, and people try to find those things everywhere, but David said, not for me, God is mine. And that's something we can focus on today, is no matter what is going on in the world, I can say the Lord is my shepherd. He belongs to me. I have a deep personal connection with him, but here's what's special is that God has a deep personal emotional connection to you as well. See, John 3.16 pretty much says it all. For God so loved the world, that's a deep emotional connection. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus himself, as he traveled around and he spoke about his disciples, he called them my children. He's speaking of us. And when he talks about his sheep, he says, they are my sheep. God comes to this earth and he declares ownership of us as well. A deep emotional connection. I love the way Max Lucado puts it. Comically, casually, he said, trying to explain how God feels about us. He said, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. Now let's be clear. We're not making a doctrinal statement with there. We're not going to go out. Hey, what do y'all believe at Ramsey Heights? Well, um, if God ever required refrigerated food, uh, my picture would be on the refrigerator. That's not what we're saying. But that's the ideal is that God views us the same way that we view what we love the most. Our children, our family, God would have our picture up in his house. It would be in his wallet if he had a wallet. And if we could only remember this, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world, if we could only remember to exalt God and say the Lord is my shepherd, how many problems seem to fade in that moment? If that was the only thing we could remember. As we focus on worship, there are many songs that mean a lot to a lot of different people. Some of the old hymns have beautiful messages, and some of the worship uh, songs of the, the modern worship songs have beautiful messages as well. and one of my favorites is a hill song song. Hillsong is the band. They have a song called Oceans. And I want to share with you the verse of this. It's loosely based on the ideal of Peter walking out on the water and of him seeing the waves around him and falling, calling on Jesus. And this is the verse of this song. I'm not going to sing it because I don't want to you know, run you off. But here's what it says. It says, "...and I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace." Now that's something to think about. When the waters come up, when the storm is too big, when the shadow is scary, God is there for us and we can rest in His embrace. But I love the last bit of it. There's this declaration of why this is possible. Why is it possible for us to keep our eyes above the waves? Why is it possible for us to have hope when the oceans is coming up? Why is it possible for us to have God? This is the last bit of that verse. For I am yours and you are mine. See the word "mind." This changes everything. It means that we have a rescuer when oceans rise. It means that we have a savior when storm blows, and it means we have a shadow in the. Mi- I'm sorry, we have a safe. We have a shepherd in the midst of the shadow. And if all there was to this hymn, that would be enough. That would be enough for us to go out and face the world as I have a shepherd. And he is there for me when I call on him. And when the shadow comes, my shepherd is there to protect me. And that's all we would need. But David continues on. He continues on to describe what his relationship with the shepherd is like. He says, I, let me read it. He says, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And he leadeth me beside the still waters. Or second can take home truth is this, is my shepherd is my peace. My shepherd is my peace. <clears throat> David looks at everything he has and everything in his life, the good and the bad and the mistakes, and he says, I have no need of anything. Everything I need is provided to me by my shepherd. That is not a natural attitude. It is not natural for us to say, I have no need of anything. There's something evil within every person that we always think we need more. It doesn't matter what God has blessed us with. If we have enough money, we always think there's another two or $3,000 a year I need to be happy. If we buy a new house, we think, boy, if this house was just a little bit bigger, we always need new cars and bigger TVs. We need more and more and more. But David, focusing in a heart of worship on the shepherd, he says, I have no need. And it's not so much that God has provided him everything he could possibly ask for. It's that he chooses, he chooses to be happy with what the shepherd provides because he trusts. When we exalt God, we find peace in trusting His greatness. And in this, we find rest. David goes on to say, he, He causes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still waters. Now to us, that may not mean much, but David was a sheep expert. He knew what it takes to get a sheep to lie down. And sheep don't just lay down. They're not like a dog where you say, hey, lay down, and they, they follow a command. Sheep only lay down when they're perfectly comfortable. If a sheep is hungry, they will continue to graze even at night and put themselves in danger. And so the shepherd, if he wants a sheep to lay down at night, must make sure their hunger is taken care of and their needs are provided for. The shepherd must be able to take care of the friction within the flock because sheep are incredibly social creatures. If there's any friction between any of the sheep, the sheep will not lay down. And if the sheep are scared, they will run, they will not lay down. And so when David says, he causes me to lie down in green pastures, what he's saying is a shepherd takes care of my needs, my food needs. He takes care of my fears. He takes care of the friction that I feel and the anxiety that may be surrounding me. And he causes me to lay down because he takes care of all of these things. Last summer, Jessica and I went on the trip of a lifetime as far as I'm concerned. We went out west. We drove up to to South Dakota and from there we stayed a few days in South Dakota and from there we left and went into Montana and Idaho and Wyoming and we went to Yellowstone National Park, one of the most beautiful places on earth. And the things we saw you can't even describe. Waterfalls hundreds of feet tall. Geysers that shot water from the ground hundreds of feet in the air. We saw animals that you can't explain in the magnitude that you can't explain. Bubbling springs. Snow-covered mountaintops. In June. So the views that can't, panoramic views that I couldn't even begin to tell you about. But during this whole trip, we were just exhausted. By about the sixth or seventh day, we'd had enough. With, within that first week, we spent at least 50 to 60 hours in the car. That's not even doing the things. That's just in the car. We were so tired. You'd pull up to a place, and you'd get out, and you'd run up the trail, and you'd go see this beautiful thing, and you'd go run back to the car, get in the car, and then you would drive 30 minutes to the next beautiful thing. And that's what our entire vacation was like. We were tired, y'all. On top of that, nobody knew it yet, but Oakley was going with us. We'd only known for about three weeks. And, and my wife was in that part of the pregnancy where she just did not feel very good. Side note, I don't know why they call it morning sickness. It needs to be renamed all the time sickness. But she doesn't complain, so I won't. Jessica didn't feel, feel well. We were tired. We were away from home. We ran all we could. And my favorite part of that entire journey is on the road into Yellowstone, there was a little parking area. And as we were coming out of the park one day, having driven for five or six hours seeing all of these beautiful things at 6-7 o'clock at night we pulled over this little parking lot it didn't even have a sign there was nothing to see it's just a place for people to kind of get out and stretch their legs and look and we climbed this little small knoll that had maybe 20 or 30 trees on it and there we laid out a hammock and we just sat in the hammock for about half an hour from our feet looking down the ground gently sloped away to a mountain stream about as wide as this church maybe if you looked off to the east you could see down the valley framed by mountains on either side you could see the valley continue on below us and that little stream just kind of snaking back and forth through there. If you look close, there were some brown dots down there and you couldn't tell what they were, but if you got your binoculars out, you could make it out just barely. They were buffalo laying out in the field, grazing and getting drinks of water. If you looked off just to the other direction... Up on the other side of this mountain stream, there was a herd of elk grazing. We sat there and watched them. We watched ducks in the water. And the most vivid image and the most important thing, I think, for me in that entire vacation was that 30 minutes where we laid in a hammock in a green pasture beside the still waters, and we rested. And we found peace. The whole world faded away. There were no more angry motorists. There was no schedule. And there was, thank goodness, there was no more car for that 30 minutes. Everything just seemed to go away as we laid there and rested. And at some point in David's life, maybe at many times in David's life, he had a moment just like that, where he found rest with his flock in some pasture next to some stream. And he uses that imagery to describe his deep emotional relational connection with God. He says, this is what it's like. I'll be honest with you, there's been many times this year I would have gone back to that hammock on that pasture. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you, if somebody told me you can leave when church is over and go back, I might preach a little bit faster and we get out of here and go to lunch early. I would love to go back to that moment of peace. But this is what David is telling us. He says we have the spiritual equivalent of that at our fingertips anytime we need it. The spiritual equivalent of that kind of peace that we can continually just be at rest because of our shepherd. David tells us what the effect of this rest is. He continues on. He says, he restores my soul and he leads me in the path of righteousness for his sake. Our last take home truth is this, is that my shepherd is my restoration. I love old things. I have a very historical mind. I love old things. It's probably why I get along with Brother Larry so well. I love, sorry, I love these old things. And, and usually when you find something old, it has some miles on it. I'm not talking about you anymore, okay? It has some miles on it. These, these old things often kind of get used, broken, and abandoned. And so when you find something old, it's like usually left out like in a barn or out in the sun. And when you find it, it's dented, and it's cracked, and it's broken, and it's just kind of useless, but there are people in the world who can look at it, the old useless piece of junk, and they can see the value in it because they have the vision to see not what it is, but what it can be. There are several shows that do this, people that restore cars, people that restore tools and, and uh, toys, gas pumps, vending machines, houses. All of these things they see, and they will take and pull it out, and they will work overtime to make it as good as new. They, they take it and they repair the, tri- the chips. They refresh the sun-faded paint. They remove the dents and they fix the cracks and they pour their heart and soul to it. And if you ever watch a show where they do this, the restoration is always expensive. So they pour out money to fix it. But when it's done, they have a lot of pride in what they've built because when they're done restoring something, it is as good as new. Let me ask you a question. In this year, has your soul felt a little bit tattered and battered? As it felt a little chipped from the wind? Maybe, maybe you finally kind of got 2020 figured out and something new come and hit you and left a new dent. Colors in your soul that used to be vi- uh, vibrant now seem a little bit faded. I've got good news. There is a restore for our souls. And, and I, have, I have felt that way more than, than most years. I felt that way this year. But there is a restorer who comes and do this. And David, David knew this restorer well. David knew him well. See, David, for all the positive things that we can talk about, David, he was an imperfect human being. And he made a mistake. One day he walked out onto his balcony, looked across the city, and he saw a beautiful woman. And David, as king of Israel, with all of the power that he had, all of the things that he could do, he said, I want her. And he had her brought to him, and he slept with a woman that was not his wife. And to make it just a little bit worse, he slept with a woman who was somebody else's wife, a close friend of his wife. David forgot about it until the news came and as David had messed up, so this young lady, whose name was Bathsheba, she had become pregnant, and David was going to be found out for the sin that he had. His close friend was going to come back and find his wife had had a baby while he was gone, and know that something had happened. And David thought, "There's no way I can escape this." And so David came up with a plan. He called his friend Uriah home, and he made up some excuse. Said, "You've got to come home," and he talked to him, and he said, "Okay, before you go back, why don't you why don't you go spend some time with your wife?" And his hope was that Uriah would go home, spend some time with his wife, and when he returned from war, the baby would be there and Uriah would think, ah, that's right, the night that I was at home, we must have conceived a child. But Uriah refused. He said, I'm not going there. I'm gonna sleep here on the porch. And so David's plan was busted, and he sent with Uriah a message. He said, give this to your commanders, and the message was this, send Uriah to the front and make sure that he dies. David, who is considered a man after God's own heart, a, a man who worshiped in his lifestyle adultery and murder, and he carried this heavily on him, and if you read the rest of the Psalms, it's basically David saying, God, I can't believe I did this. When will you restore me? We may have never committed those exact sins. We may have never been a king that took advantage of a young girl. We may have never had a friend murdered, but every soul carries the same burden of sin that David's soul carried. And, and there is good news. There is a restore. And David understood this restore. David knew that there was a restore who would work overtime to make him good as new, who would repair the chips and refresh the pain and remove the dents and fix the cracks. David knew there was a restore who would pour his heart and soul into his project. And David knew there was a restore, the the cost of the restoration was expensive. And David knew that there would be a restore who would pour out his blood on a cross as the price of fixing that. But when he is done, The product is as good as new. If we could have the musicians, please. I want to ask you this morning a question. I want to ask you a question as they come up here. Have you met the Restorer and allowed Him to restore your soul? Every last one of us carries a sin burden. Every last one of us has a cracked soul, faded by the things that we failed God with. And today, we can leave here, and we can call God my shepherd. All He asks is is faith from us, and all He asks is a decision to follow Him and give our hearts to Him. And for the rest of us, if we already call God my shepherd, if we already call Him ours, and we can claim that ownership, why not start now and start today as we go out into the world keeping our focus on God, praying when something bothers us, singing praises when we need to focus on something besides the world around us, and living a lifestyle of worship.